Well, good morning, friends. Uh, I want you to know that I am, I am grateful and I, am, I was honored by David's invitation to come and, and speak with you. Um, it's a privilege to, to be with you. I've met a few of you before, uh, whether at Christmas parties at the Cecil House uh, or Thanksgiving parties that you guys throw up here at the church that, uh, that interlopers sometimes come and, and get to be a part of. So I've had the gift of meeting a few of you before. Uh, this morning, I'm particularly grateful for, for the Cecil family. I was thinking back to when we first met them. Uh, our family moved to Saginaw right before Easter in 2019. Uh, and we sort of assumed that Easter lunch was going to be kind of a lonely affair. We were going to visit some church where we didn't know anybody. Then we were going to go home and, I don't know, maybe eat Taco Bueno uh, for Easter lunch. We weren't sure what we were going to do. Uh, and the Cecils would have none of that. We had met them recently. And so the Cecils invited us for a wonderful uh, Easter Sunday lunch, hanging out into the afternoon. And that was the beginning of a friendship with their family, and we have just continued uh, down that road. And it's been a gift to us. Uh, So in this part of the country, what I would say by way of introduction is I am Andy, and I am David's friend. So that's that's where I would start. Um, I'll go on to say that uh, that our family, we were missionaries for about 13 years to a small tribe in a small country in West Africa. Uh, We were were living and working among a tribe called the Dagara tribe in a little country called Burkina Faso. Uh, in West Africa. It's a very small country about the size of Colorado, just below the Sahara Desert. And while we were there, we were blessed to get to see God do some pretty amazing things. Uh, During the years that we were there, about 5% of the tribe came to Jesus. It was just amazing to get to see a movement started that that we got to be a small part of. We got to have a front row seat to this thing that God had been preparing to do uh, among a small tribe and a small country. It was a gift But when we were done with our work there, we moved back to the States. Uh, We landed in central Alabama, which was a a foreign place to us, as foreign as Burkina Faso ever was. Uh, We served for about four and a half years. I was the missions pastor at a church there in central Alabama before we moved back here. And now I work at a nonprofit uh, that assesses and trains and serves missionaries around the world, particularly missionaries that serve in places with people that that have not heard the gospel before, those that work in unreached people groups. And as David referenced earlier, Amy pays me as our bookkeeper, and so technically I guess I work for her, is is how that works. So this morning, I want to come to you with, with a message of hope. If you've been a believer for a while, you've probably heard us talk a lot about faith, hope, and love. We, with those three remain, love is the greatest of them. We talk a whole lot about faith. We're saved by faith. And honestly, I, a couple of years ago, I noticed that we don't talk a lot about hope. It's one of the three biggies. But I, I'm, I'm kind of even hard-pressed to define hope. Uh, it's, it's certainly more than just plain old, good old-fashioned optimism. Uh, hope is something greater than that. And so the, the definition that I've been playing with as I've just been praying through this and, and working with this over the last couple of years in my own walk is that hope is a bold conviction about a really good future in and through a good and sovereign God. That's the kind of hope that we're talking about today. That's where we're headed. Before we do that, though, let me pray and, uh, and invite the Father more specifically into this time together. Father, right now we give this time to you. This is, this is a moment that we are asking you to act. We're asking you to speak. Father, we believe that those of us who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that over the next few minutes, your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us, that we would receive a message of hope. Because we need it, Lord. It's in the Christ that we pray these things. Amen. All right, well, I stand before you this morning as a man who has a number of different scars on me. Uh, for instance, I've got some good scars on my head. 
Uh, there are many things that I miss about Burkina Faso, the country where we lived. I miss, I miss my friends. I miss the food, believe it or not. I miss the pace of life. And I really miss the ceiling fans that we had in Burkina Faso. They knew how to make a ceiling fan. They, they, were, they were thin metal, sharp blades uh, that looked more like airplane propellers than anything else. I'm convinced that when all the ceiling fans in our home were on, the house weighed less. It was that kind of ceiling fan that really moved air for us. And I bear on my body, on the back of my head, a nice little scar here at the base of my skull to remind me just how good the ceiling fans in Burkina Faso were. Uh, early in our time in Burkina, we were still kind of decorating our home even, and Melissa had asked me to hang some curtain rods in the kitchen. And, you know, I climbed up on the counter and I checked to make sure that the ceiling fan was far enough away from me. And then I, and then I hopped over to, I was more agile back in, a little more agile back in those days, hopped to the next counter and I, and I hung the next curtain rod and, and, and I did one more and I wasn't paying attention anymore to where the ceiling fan was. And so I, I, was, I was done and I leaned back to admire my handiwork at how straight I had managed to hang these curtain rods. And, and there was this loud pop and a ceiling fan had hit the back of my head. And Melissa got to have one of those moments that I know all of you women anticipate when you marry dumb men. You, you anticipate that moment where your husband's going to come in with one of your good white kitchen held to his head, asking, babe, I need you to stay calm, but do I need stitches? Uh, that, that's just one of those things. I know most of you anticipate having that conversation with your husband at some point. Melissa looked. I did need stitches. We didn't know where the clinic was. We found out where a clinic was in our little village. We went down there. Uh, they stitched me up. They had, they had no painkillers in the village. Um, uh, so I, I sti got stitched up. My, my wife was sitting there, so I acted tougher than I really was, and I didn't cry until later. Uh, and so now I have a scar on the back of my head that reminds me of my love of the ceiling fans in Burkina Faso. Uh, if, I were, if I were standing in front of you preaching in shorts, which David told me I was not allowed to do, but if I were standing in front of you preaching in shorts, you would see a scar on my shin that comes from the time when I was in sixth grade as a part of a young astronaut's trip to Florida. I've, I've always been this cool. And, and I, was on a, I was on a young astronaut's trip in Florida, and I was in a group, in a, in a room full of junior high boys. And we were all jumping on the bed because our parents weren't around. And that's what you do when your parents aren't around in junior high. And as I went down, the, the cheap spring on the cheap mattress in the cheap hotel room came up through the, through the mattress and into my leg. And, uh, and I rolled the wrong direction, so I just kind of wrapped it around me on the inside. And so then, then I had my junior high buddies helping to, helping to twist me out of this thing. The whole thing went really, really well. And, and, as, I, and I, as I managed to get untwisted, I called my father to check and see if my tetanus shot was up to date. And, and you'll see where I get my pastoral streak inside of me. There was a silence on the phone. And my dad, instead of checking on me, he said, well, what have we learned about this? This is what, this is what good fathers do. Uh, and so I, I've got that scar on my leg. Uh, the truth is, some of the most profound scars that I carry, though, are ones you can't see. Uh, for instance, I have a number of scars gouged pretty deeply on my heart that the Lord's been healing uh, that stemmed from our time of waiting for children. Uh, our journey toward having kids was a long and difficult one. Uh, it included five miscarriages along the way, all of which happened while we were overseas far from family. And, um, and as it turned out, the reason that we kept miscarrying had to do with my body, not Melissa's. And so I, I was, here I was, already a guy that was specially equipped to tell the story of Zacchaeus with a remarkable amount of pathos and energy because of my height. Now I found out that, that I wasn't able to, to give my wife the kids that she desired so much. And so those are... Those are the kind of scars that you carry around that not many other people see. So why are we starting here? Why do you start a sermon about hope in talking about scars? 
Let's come back to that here in a minute. Uh, For those of us who believe that there is an afterlife, there's some controversy around what heaven's going to look like. Uh, If you're like me, if if you're my age or older, probably your vision of the afterlife was most shaped by Looney Tunes. Uh, We had this vision. Every time something happens, they would would go up into heaven, there would be clouds, um, there would be harps, uh, there would be angels that were not in any way threatening or scary. And honestly, a lot of boredom. As, I was, as, a, as a kid, that's, that, that was how my vision of heaven was shaped. I think now, as I wrestle, I try to figure out in my head, what does a, a gate made out of pearls look like? What does a pearly gate look like? What is, a, what is a road actually made out of gold? What does that look like? I wrestle with those things. Other world religions try to tell us what their vision of heaven is. I think, friends, we have a lot of those, I think we have a lot of people in our life that probably walk around convinced there's just nothing. I'm not quite sure how you handle a, a life like that. But the nice thing is, Culture doesn't define what we think about the afterlife. We are people of a book. We, we know the truth. We have access to the word. And so we know what the coming kingdom is going to look like. Uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah is a place that talks a lot about this, actually, about what the coming kingdom is going to be like. I, I love Isaiah. I named one of my kids after the book Isaiah. And a lot of why I love it so much is because of this vision of something better. In Isaiah 2, we're told about that time when all of the swords will be beaten into plowshares. There's not going to be a need for weapons anymore in the coming kingdom. In the coming kingdom, there will be no mall shootings. There will be no children picking up their siblings and getting shot through a door. There will be none of that because all of the weapons will have been beaten into plowed shares because we won't need them anymore. In Isaiah 11, we've got this beautiful image of, of a wolf laying down with a lamb of a leopard lying down with a goat, of a calf lying down with a lion. And for a father who was raising his kids in West Africa, the one that always got me was the image of a child reaching into the cobra's den, and everything's going to be fine. Because in the coming kingdom, we don't hurt each other. In Isaiah 41, we're given this image of desert lands being turned into watered places. Uh, For a guy whose roots go back to big springs in West Texas, That image of desert lands being turned into watered places is is this beautiful image that really speaks to my soul. Or we can skip all the way to the end of the book. We can skip to Revelation 19, and we've got this image of a wedding feast, this beautiful wedding feast of the Lamb, a party to end all parties that never ends. This beautiful image about about fine linen and and bright lights and, and jewels and fire and crystal. We're told a couple different places in Revelation that there will be no tears anywhere in heaven. So those are important passages about heaven. They matter. But I think we, mo- think we pretty frequently overlook some of the most important passages about what the coming kingdom is going to look like. The ones I'm talking about come near the end of the Gospels and the beginning of the book of Acts. These are the first five books of your New Testament. They tell the stories about Jesus and what his apostles did immediately following his death and burial, resurrection, and ascension. The passages I'm talking about are the stories where we are told what Jesus looked like after he had been raised from the dead. And I'm so glad that they included these stories so that we can get a picture of what it looks like when we're made new. So what are some of the things we learn about Scripture, learn from Scripture about the resurrected Lord's body? Uh, we know that he could eat. We know that he could cook. I love that Luke records for us that when Jesus stumbled on him, he didn't stumble on him, he came upon a bunch of disciples that were scared, and Jesus essentially asked Anybody got anything to eat around here? I love that that was the Lord's question when he, when he came upon his disciples. We know he could pass through walls. When a room was locked, he could still get in there. We know that Jesus could be recognized. We also know that he could choose not to be recognized. 
We know that he could be touched. In other words, Jesus was very human. When Jesus went up into heaven, he went as a man. A different kind of man, for sure. But still a human. Not a disembodied ghost walking around metaphorical streets of gold, sitting on a metaphorical throne. A real person. One who'd been changed. But a real person. But here's the thing that I want you to pay attention to. Jesus still had scars. The firstborn of the new creation. The one whom we will all be changed to look like one day and is even now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven still bears the scars of how he was killed. But yet, at the same time, we're told he's perfect. So how's that possible? How do we hold these two tensions at the same time? How do we reconcile these things? That the resurrected Lord's body was perfect and made new and still had scars on it. Friends, I think the deal is we need to redefine the word perfect. Our definition of perfect needs revision. And part of the good news, part of the gospel message is that this great reversal, this kingdom that looks upside down, where high things get brought low and where low things, our wounds, our failures, our scars, get brought high as they're redeemed by God, all of these things are part of what it means to be perfect. So if you were to come over to our house for dinner, um, you, would, you would see from all the various woodworking projects around that honestly not a whole lot sank in during my high school woodworking classes. Uh, you, you, that, that much is obvious. But there are a few things that I remember that Mr. Wood taught me, and I kid you not, my high school woodworking teacher's name was Mr. Wood. He taught me wood glue is a pretty amazing thing. When you do it right. When you do it right. And you put two pieces of wood together, whether they were broken and they're coming back together or they've been cut to where they fit into each other perfectly. When you do it right, the joint is stronger than all the surrounding wood. It's really a miracle. The broken place winds up being the strongest place. Maybe we need another example. Uh, You've probably seen examples of that Japanese art form called kintsugi, where where broken pottery is repaired using lacquer that's dusted with gold or other other precious metals. What I love about that is that it treats the broken places as part of the story of the object, rather than something that needs to be disguised. And in the process, a broken piece of pottery becomes more beautiful and more valuable than it was before it was broken. It seems to me as if one of the messages of the resurrection of Jesus is that that which is broken and then made new by God is better than before it was broken in the first place. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. I want you to hear this. One of the messages of the resurrection of Jesus is that that which is broken and then remade new by God is better than what was never broken in the first place. I want you to think back to the, to the original creation, back, back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden, that beautiful, perfect creation always held within it the possibility of a fall. You could probably even say the probability or the inevitability of a fall. But as far as I can tell, when we look at Scripture, once all things are made new, there's no second fall coming. We, we don't have any indication of that. Somehow the fallen and redeemed world is going to be better, more perfect than the original one in the garden. And our scars are a part of that story. The truth is, we don't get to bring many things with us into heaven. We've all seen, we've all seen pictures of people trying to take a U-Haul trailer with them into the cemetery, things like that. We don't get to take stuff with us into heaven, but if we believe 
that Jesus is any indication of what's coming, our scars are one of the things we do take with us into eternity. Now, am I going to take my physical ones? I don't know. The one on the back of my head, that one's just from being stupid. That was just not paying attention. Uh, the one on my legs, I got that one as I learned a pretty important lesson about obeying and honoring my parents, whether I was with them or not, uh, which is one of those first commandments with a promise. But I will tell you this, friends. I know this for a fact. Part of how I glorify God now and how I'm going to glorify him then is in the scars that I bear from waiting for children. One of these days, I'm going to get to stand in a choir with men like Abraham, Elkanah, and Zechariah. Get to take my place in that choir of men whose wives bore unexpected children at unexpected times. Part of my redemption, part of my testimony, is the good work that God has done in me of redeeming those kinds of scars. Now my guess is that there are some of you sitting here today who will join with the millions of others who one day get to sing of how God healed the scars of losing a spouse or of losing a child or of losing a sibling far too soon, yet finding redemption and healing nevertheless. I'm guessing that some of you are going to get to sing the praises of a God that met you in the pits of depression or any other mental illness and set your feet on a rock even when it didn't feel like a rock. My assumption is that with, with a group like this size, that, that some of us bear scars from addictions, whether those be alcohol or drug or gambling or sex, whether they be scars from your own addiction or an addiction that a loved one struggled through. And the hope for those of you carrying those kind of scars is that part of how God perfects you, part of how God makes you new, is the way that he takes the powerlessness to defeat an addiction on your own. And he walks with you until you're able to carry that message to others. The beauty in step 12 has a whole lot to do with the brokenness in step one. So my message of hope for you today is that there is a human body, at least one, that's up in heaven, that this human body, like the rest of us, bears some scars that have been redeemed. Part of our becoming more like Jesus is God's redemption of our scars. What I love about it is that he doesn't erase them, but he redeems them in such a way that we're all perfected together in the arithmetic of eternity our scars have as much value as our triumphs in the kingdom. It's in them, it's in our weakness that we get to show the strength of God. Now the truth is we should have seen this coming. Uh, we just wrapped up with Easter season. So at some point during Lent, during Easter, I'm sure you read Isaiah 53. We're told that this work of redemption that Jesus did was, was happened in part because of, the, because of the wounds that he bore. It's by his stripes that we are healed. It's in that that we're redeemed. There are plenty of places in the New Testament that we can turn to about this. One of them is, one of them is in Romans 8. I'll read you Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, I love Romans 8, 28 when you take it with 8, 29, because I feel like 8, 28 is one of the world's most misused passages that just gets, that just gets thrown at people when, 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 to try to make them feel better when they've just gotten a diagnosis they don't like or when they've just experienced a tragedy. I feel like we're stopping too soon. Because there's more going on into Romans 8.29, which says, For those that God knew ahead of time, he also predestined to become like Jesus, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Why does God work all of this good for us? It's so that we can become more like Jesus. So that we can be conformed to the image of the Son of God. And I want you to remember that when Paul wrote a letter to the people that lived in Rome, this was already seated at the right hand of the Father, 
with his scars. If the goal of this life is to become more like Jesus, then we will bear redeemed scars with us on our way into eternity. We can also check out the end of the, the letters that Paul wrote back and forth with believers that were in Corinth. Near the end of the book that we call 2 Corinthians, uh, we, we read this from Paul. Paul says, if I have to boast, I'm going to boast in the things that show my weakness. Man, what an upside-down kingdom we're talking about here. I'll boast in the things that show my weakness. The reason for that, he tells us a little bit later, he says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I asked God, I begged God to take it away from me, but he said to me, hear this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about weaknesses, so that Christ's power can rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties, for, here's the crux of the matter, friends, when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul makes it crystal clear that God prefers to work through weak people so that more glory goes to him when we're weak. So what are the implications for us this morning? As, as, we've, as we've thought about scars, we've thought about hope, we've listened to a guy named Paul bring some words to us. What are some implications for us this morning here in this church? Let's see three. First of all, having been confronted by our scars, by our low places, the very best thing to do is to open them up to God for healing so that they can become a part of our resurrected self. Remember, our, our picture of perfection is incomplete without our scars. Christians are not perfect in the sense that the world expects it of us, and, they, and therefore they point judgmentally at us when we turn out to be normal people who carry some scars. Perfection only comes within the context of an upside-down kingdom where high stuff gets low and lows get brought high through an encounter with a very living Jesus, the one through whom we are all made perfect by his scars. Secondly, I would say, if we want to bring honor to Jesus through this church or through any church... We have to be honest about our scars and our hurts as individuals and as a church. God is not honored when we gather together and pretend everything's all right. He gets the glory, and Paul would say there is finally something to boast about when we're honest about our brokenness with each other and with our communities of faith. Nothing's ever made better by pretended perfection. It's actually offensive to a broken world and its scarred citizens, and it takes away an opportunity that we have to honor God. And finally, third, and this is where I'll land the plane, what about that broken and hurting world, that world that has scars, but doesn't know what to do with them and doesn't know what they mean? If we as the family of God are serious about leading people into relationships with Jesus, about doing kingdom stuff in ways that we haven't done before, and we're going to have to welcome broken people into the family. Now, they're not all going to look like us. And they're going to be carrying some baggage. And they're going to have some scars. But it's in the redemption of scars, or, or for, be honest with each other, far more specifically in the redemption of scarred people that God glorifies himself. If we want to make ourselves a better bride of the perfected and scarred Christ then we absolutely must orient ourselves. We must shape ourselves to be people that welcome scarred children into the family.
So before we sing the song King of Kings, I'm going to pray over us, uh, and then after that, we'll be led in song. So let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that our Lord, that our Savior carries scars. And we thank you for the hope that is found in that, because we know, Lord, that you don't expect us to be perfect, but instead you expect us to be weak so that you can show your glory. And so, Father, my prayer is that this week we would live as children, as followers of a scarred and perfected Lord, that we would be realistic and honest about our scars and that we would be realistic and honest about our salvation in and even through them. Father, I pray for the Eagle Mountain Baptist Church that it would be a place where scarred people feel welcome, where they come into this community and they discover the goodness and the sweetness and the hope of following a Lord who himself bears scars into eternity. It's in the Christ and through the power of your spirit that I pray these things. Amen.